Uh, welcome to Valley Life. If we haven't had uh, the honor of meeting yet, my name is Adam Young. I'm one of the pastors alongside Dustin here and excited that you're here for a new series and as we enter into a new year. Now, I don't know how many of you like stories. I think it's pretty universal that um, everyone loves stories and all humans love stories, different times and different cultures. Um, the types of stories that we enjoy and the delivery method of the way we enjoy our stories may differ. Um, some of you may love written stories. Some of you may love um, oral stories, stories that you tell. Um, some of you may love listening to stories, but some of you love watching stories, specifically on the big screen. That's probably our culture's most common and celebrated way of sharing stories. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to jump into a movie halfway through or jump into a, like an entire movie series halfway through. But if you've ever had that experience, you know that if you, if you don't understand the context with which the story is taking place, it, it can make it almost impossible to really understand what's going on, uh, and you can get the wrong idea about the story that's being told. Uh, let me give you a great example that uh, comes from one of my great parenting fails. Um, Okay, so I don't really like fantasy that much. I definitely don't read fantasy books, and I don't really care about fantasy movies. Uh, so I know this makes me odd. I've seen some of the Marvel movies. Most of them I probably haven't seen. They're fine. I just don't get into them that much. Um, I think I have seen every Star Wars at this point, uh, but that's just because of my kids. Um, up until having kids, I think I had seen one Star Wars movie. I just didn't... I just don't really love fantasy that much. Now, some of you uh, are, are not interested in hearing anything else I have to say uh, after that confession. Um, but uh, I just have never really been that into fantasy. But um, when my oldest son, most of you know who he is, Beckett, uh, when he was really little, probably four or five, and I don't know if it was his idea or my idea, but we decided we were going to start watching Star Wars. Because... Uh, you know, what little boy doesn't love lightsabers and good and evil fighting each other? Um, I didn't really, I, I knew some of the main parts of the story. Like I said, I think I'd seen one uh, of the movies. And I was like, well, I know originally they started with episode four. Let's just start with episode one because that seems more logical. Um, and so we'll just get the background to the story. And so uh, we're watching and... Um, Instantly, Beckett, as a four- or five-year-old boy, falls in love with this character, Anakin, who is like this young, budding <laughs> Jedi. And, I mean, what little boy wouldn't? Like, he has superpowers, and it's awesome. And the whole time we're watching episode one, I keep thinking, why do they keep calling Luke Anakin? Because uh, all I was familiar with was Luke Skywalker, I didn't know this Anakin Skywalker kid was, and I, I, I didn't know why they were calling Luke Anakin. And um, it was probably towards like the end of the first movie, maybe the beginning of the second one, I was like, oh, now I see what's happening. If you don't know Star Wars, I'm gonna give you like the layman guy who doesn't know anything about it. Anakin is gonna become Luke's father, and Anakin's gonna become really bad and become Darth Vader, like the main you know, evil guy in, in the whole series. Uh, so, you know, Beckett's like idolizing this little boy with superpowers and wants to be him. And then I realize everything's about to go really bad. 
and uh, it was about halfway through the second movie uh, when Anakin fully turns bad and just starts killing everyone, including little children. Didn't see that coming. Um, and so Beckett's four or five, and so uh, Elaine and I are there with him, and we were like, Beckett, turn around, because he's standing there watching, and he turns around, and he's looking at us, the TV's to his back, and he just starts crying, because his hero has just turned totally evil. So we turn the movie off. I give it a few weeks, and I like look up the actual story, so then I'm like trying to tell him what's happening, and you know, trying to paint some picture of hope in there. And uh, I, I'm like, do you want to start like watching? We just skip episode two. Let's just go to episode three. And he's like, no, like I don't. Uh, it was it was several years before he was ready to watch Star Wars again. Uh, I felt like a total tool because uh, I, I didn't know I didn't know the story, and I didn't even know to protect him from like, you know, uh, worshiping this little boy hero uh, with superpowers. I didn't I didn't know. If you don't know the context of a story, it can make it really hard uh, to understand what's taking place or to anticipate what's coming. Um, what we're going to do as we enter into a new year, we're entering into a new series. Uh, and in this series, we're going to talk about the minor prophets. Now, here in a minute, I'll tell you what those are and, and, and why they're called that. But what I want to do to start with is I want to paint a picture of what's taking place. You may have not ever recognized it, but the Bible, with its 66 books, is actually one story. It was written over a period of almost 2,000 years by more than 40 authors uh, in three different languages on multiple different continents, but it's really one big story. And so to know what the minor prophets are doing and how they fit into this story, I think it'd be helpful for us just to paint a little bit of a bigger picture. And so uh, to begin with, the Bible opens uh, with a beautiful scene of God and his creation uh, that he labeled good. And there God is with people that he created, and they're living in perfect harmony. But then something called sin enters into the picture, sin being rebellion against God and his desires. And when sin enters into the picture, everything is destroyed. Uh, humanity's relationship with God is destroyed. Humanity's relationship with one another, destroyed. Humanity's relationship with creation, destroyed. And the rest of the story, the rest of the Bible, is about God working to restore his creation and the pinnacle of his creation, humanity, back to the state that he originally desired them to be so that we could live in perfect harmony with creation and with one another and with our creator. And so along this story, God comes to a man named Abraham and says, I'm going to create a new people group through you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna your, your descendants are gonna outnumber the grains of sand on the beaches and the stars in the sky. And what I'm gonna do is I am going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to the nations. I'm going to bless all people, but I'm gonna funnel it through this new people group that I'm going to create through you, Abraham. And so as the story moves along, there are highs and low points. There's high points when people start to act um, in, in good relationship with the Lord, when they start to embrace who God is and what he desires for us, his creation. And then there's really low points 
when we rebel as humanity and have to face the consequences. And then at some point, this people group that was started with Abraham finds themselves in Egypt, in ancient Egypt. And at one point, they actually become slaves of the Egyptians. And so you have these Hebrew people who have all of these promises to hold on to, that God was going to bless them, he was going to multiply them, he was going to give them a land they could call their own, uh, to set up base so that God could funnel his blessings to them and then through them. But it doesn't look like any of those promises are coming true because they're being brutally treated and killed as slaves in Egypt. And then God hears their cries for help and their prayers and comes to set them free. And he does it through a guy named Moses, who he uses to lead his people out of slavery from Egypt and into their promised land. And so as they move into this promised land, they start to set up shop. They start to build cities and build homes and farms and uh, commerce, and they develop um, a formal structure of worshiping God who had been so faithful to them in hopes of moving closer towards what God desired, a, a creation that was in unity, that humanity that was united, and humanity that was united not only to one another, but to him, their creator. But because of sin, things never really get that much better. As a matter of fact, they usually get worse and worse and worse. And so that's sort of an overview of the beginning parts of the Old Testament. Here's some timelines that I want to give to you just because I think it'll be helpful. Now, some of you uh, are like me and you're history nerds. And so timelines and things are exciting. And some of you are like, can we just go back to Marvel and Star Wars? Um, I won't make this part too long, but I think it'll be helpful because if, if you know what happens in the bigger story, when we zoom into any one particular scene, it will help that scene or that prophet and their ministry make more sense. And so we kind of did a quick overview of sort of how the Israelite or the Hebrew people get started. They're originally called Hebrews, and from a historical perspective, when they leave Egypt and become their own nation, that's when they go from being Hebrews to Israelites. You'll see that transition in the Bible. And then as they establish themselves in this land, in about 1050 BC, all these dates will be in BC, we see the monarchy established. That's when Israel begins to have their own kingdom and kings. And so it begins with a guy named Saul, King Saul. And then after him comes King David. This is the famous King David who was at one time a shepherd boy who defeated Goliath and then rises to the throne because God anoints him to be the next one to rule his people. Uh, later on, his son, King Solomon, will ascend to the throne. And then shortly after Solomon takes the throne, he begins to build the grand temple in Jerusalem. Uh, but things do not go well for very long. Even though during these initial kings, uh, it seems as though things are going very well for the Israelite people. Um, after the death of Solomon, the kingdom goes through a terrible civil war and splits. And you have some of the tribes of these people in the north, we call that Israel, and in the south, Judah. And there's a lot of infighting and 
all the sin that started to mar humanity gets worse and worse and worse. And then, shortly there later, the new superpower in the world at that time, the Assyrian Empire, comes and they conquer all of the northern tribes. A lot of the Israelites are murdered. Those who aren't murdered um, are forced to deport uh, and live elsewhere and honestly live as slaves. Then another superpower in the world at the time starts to come on the scene. And in 586, the Babylonians come and they conquer the southern part of the kingdom. And in 586 is the year that they actually destroy the temple and what Israelites aren't killed are taken off into captivity to Babylon to serve as slaves there. But then another superpower starts to arise on the world stage, and that would be the Persian Empire. And the Persians defeat the Babylonians, and they actually allow some of the Israelites to go back home. And as they go back home, they start to rebuild life. They begin to rebuild their temple that had been destroyed, and then they begin to rebuild the city walls around Jerusalem to protect themselves. This is the timeline of the second half of the Old Testament, the first half being the summary that I gave at first. The life of the prophets happens um, during the divided kingdom onward. And what you're going to notice, you may know this already about your Bible, you may not, but your Old Testament is not in chronological order. There's some of it that is, but it's not designed to be in chronological order. Your Old Testament is designed like a library. It's divided into categories of literature. So it starts with the first five books of the law, and then it moves to history, and then it moves to what we call wisdom literature, and it's songs and poetry, and then it moves on to the prophets. And so what we're going to do in this series is we're going to look at the 12 minor prophets, and we're going to do so in chronological order. Um, that's not the same order that they're in in your Bible, but we're going to go in a different one. We're going to go chronological order because I think it'll be helpful for us as we start to walk through so we know what's taking place. So what is a prophet exactly? What, what does a prophet do? What, what function does the prophet serve in the Bible? Well, a prophet and their ministry was major, mostly concerned um, with God's relationship with humanity, specifically his people, the Israelites. And we call that relationship a covenant. It was a covenant because God had rescued Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and he had invited them to join him in becoming a nation of justice and generosity that would represent his justice and generosity to the rest of the nations. And so this partnership required all the Israelite people to give their trust and allegiance to God alone. This is called the covenant. And when the people failed to uphold the covenant, that's when a prophet would step in. And they kind of had a threefold process or ministry. The first was accusation. A prophet would come and declare to the people, this is what you've done wrong. This is how you've broken that relationship with our God, the one who rescued us out of slavery, who gave us our own land, who took care of us and provided for us, who said if we would serve him and follow him, then he would bless us and care for us. 
this is what we've done wrong. In many ways, they almost acted uh, like religious lawyers. They brought the accusation against the people. But then the second thing they did was call people to repentance. They would say, hey, if, if you come and you turn, repentance literally means to turn around. If you would confess what you've done wrong, if you change your ways and start following God again, then he's going to pour out his mercy on us. But if we don't, then judgment is coming. And in the prophets, they call this judgment the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is when God comes to announce the consequences of his people breaking his rules and their relationship. The day of the Lord was a vision of the future when God would come and bring his justice on Israel's corruption and on the violence of all the local nations. And to do this, to to talk about this day of the Lord, the prophets would a lot of times use cosmic imagery. Uh, For example, when the prophet Jeremiah was uh, announcing the consequences that the Israelites were gonna face for their disobedience, um, he described their exile of being forced out of their homeland and taken to Babylon. Um, he, he described it as the undoing of creation itself. He said that the land would dissolve into chaos and disorder. There'd be no land or animals or people. He describes the downfall of Babylon as the disintegration of the cosmos that stars would be falling from the sky, that the sun would go dark. And so they would use this cosmic imagery to describe what was going to happen when God came to bring justice on the earth. And in using this cosmic imagery, they were doing two things at once. They were talking about the very real events that were going to take place among the people of their day, but also a look to the future of when one day God would come to earth to bring his final justice and to set all things right again. And so at one time, using this special imagery, they're doing two things, talking about the here and the now for them and a one day long future when God would not just bring immediate justice but his final justice. And so if you're in rebellion to God and his covenant, then the day of the Lord is bad news. But If you're awaiting the arrival of God's kingdom, then it's great news. And as part of these cosmic imageries, um, the prophets vision a time when the faithful are restored, when those who are in exile will get to come home, when they'll be what they describe as a new Jerusalem, almost like a new garden of Eden, where all humanity can live at peace with each other and with creation and with their creator. And what they begin to envision is a messianic king who will come to help restore and inaugurate this new kingdom. Now, some prophets, they were very skilled and powerful speakers, and they had a lot of significant social influence. Others, they lived on the margins of society. They were ignored and mocked and persecuted and had very little influence or impact. They often performed strange stunts um, to help teach or support their message. And their writings were sort of like resistance literature, and most people ignored them. That was until the things that they said were going to come actually came true. 
And it wasn't until they started to come true that people started to take their works and their words seriously. And so all the prophets are divided up into two main categories. You have the major prophets and the minor prophets. And uh, it's real sophisticated how they get into one category or the other. It's based on how big their book was. That's all there is. The major prophets are really long books. The minor prophets have really small books. Um, so much so that if you take all the 12 minor prophets they, and you add them all together, they only make up about two-thirds of Isaiah, just one of the major prophets. The major prophets could not all fit on one scroll, but you could get all the minor prophets on one scroll, which is why they got lumped together. And so what we're going to do in this series is take a journey through these 12 minor prophets, these 12 prophets who just had smaller books. This is the order we're going to do them in. That's not the order they are in your Bible. And as we look at each of these, we're going to read stories about the prophets and their poems and their visions that are arranged to show how what's taking place in the world has significant meaning for the history of God's people and how God will take their story of failure and their story of exile and turn it into a story of hope and, in, and into a story of restoration. Now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at Jonah this morning, but we're going to do it quickly because I had two tasks today. One was to talk about Jonah, but the other one was just to prepare us for this series, to sort of build the expectation of what's taking place. Jonah is a prophet in the 8th century, and uh, he is a prophet just before the Assyrians will defeat the northern kingdom uh, of Israel. That's the time frame of which Jonah and his ministry exist. Jonah's story is very unique because rather than focusing on the prophet's words, like most of the prophetic literature, this story focuses on the prophet's story. And just so you know, just because they're called a prophet doesn't mean they're always a good guy or the hero of the story. Jonah is a book of irony. It portrays these stereotyped characters who do the exact opposite of what you would expect them to do. For example, the prophet actually rebels and hates his own God. There's a group of sailors who are supposed to be immoral, uh, but actually have very soft hearts and uh, are very sensitive and uh, humble before God. You have the king of the Assyrian Empire, who is the most violent and murderous nation in the world at the time, who humbles himself and submits himself before God. And even some of the animals in the Assyrian Empire will bow down in humility before the Lord. And so, in every real sense, the book of Jonah is satire. That's how it functions. Because everything you would expect to take place is really what actually happens is the exact opposite. And it's that satire, it's that twist in the story that God uses to teach us and his people. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to give you a quick overview of some of the chapters in Jonah, and then we're going to slow down on what I think is the main point where we can land the plane today, but I think where God has a message to speak to all of us. Here's how the book of Jonah opens. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, 
the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, Nineveh is the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrians are some of the most violent and most brutal ancient empires that we have in recorded history. God tells Jonah, this time he's going to bring accusation not against God's own people, but against another nation. And he says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh, the capital city of the most violent empire, not only at the time, but even in world history. And I want you to call out against it. And instead, Jonah does the opposite. Now, uh, here's a map just to give you some perspective. So Jonah, located in Joppa, was called to go to Nineveh. But we're told that when God calls him to go and to preach in Nineveh, he instead heads west, excuse me, uh, yes, west, to take a ship to head to a place called Tarshish, which would be in modern-day Spain. He is, in every literal sense, doing exactly opposite of what God has called him to do. And so Jonah gets on this boat, and as they're heading out, a great storm arises And uh, Jonah's in the belly of the boat taking a nap. Uh, The sailors are scared for their lives, and they know this has to be an act of God. Like, because of this storm and the way it came and how big and severe it is, there's no explanation other than this is an act of God, and so God is trying to punish someone on this boat, is what they concluded. So they go to Noah. I mean, excuse me, Noah. Wrong boat. Uh, They go to Jonah, and... uh, They confront Jonah, and uh, he says, yeah, this is my fault. And in just such a ridiculous way, he tells the sailors, yes, I respect and fear my God, uh, and he controls the land and the sea, and uh, this storm is because of me, which is comical, because if he really respected and worshiped God, he never would have been there in the first place. So the sailors ask him, what are we supposed to do? And Jonah says, well, throw me overboard. Now, almost for a moment, it it almost seems noble. But it's probably Jonah's most selfish move yet. I mean, what greater way to not follow God's call and go where God's called you to do if, if you die? And so it seems noble, like he's trying to save the sailors' lives, but he's really just looking out for himself. And so these sailors don't want to do it, but reluctantly and praying to God, they throw him overboard. And in that moment, these sailors, who are supposed to represent uh, the people of immorality, stop to give genuine respect and worship to God. It's our first twist of irony. The prophet, the man of God, runs from God And it's those who were supposed to be living in rebellion to him that actually turn and worship him. And then in a great twist of irony, verse 17 at the end of chapter 1, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So God foils Jonah's plan to avoid going to Nineveh by sending a big fish to eat him. Now, this would normally be certain death, right? Uh, But remember, in this story, everything's upside down. 
And so Jonah's wet grave actually turns out to be his passage back to life. Jonah prays to God, and it's an interesting prayer. This is what he says uh, at the end of chapter 2 in his prayer. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, we probably have never used those words, but I bet most of us in this room have prayed that same prayer. God, I'm in trouble. I need your help. If you'll get me out of this, I'll do whatever you say. That's what Jonah said. All that I vowed, I will do. Because I know salvation comes from you. Only you can save me, God. Those who worship false idols, they forsake the love that comes from you. And I know that. Now, we don't know how genuine this prayer was, how much Jonah felt this deep in his heart, or how much he was just trying to get out of trouble. So he prays to God. He acknowledges that God has not yet abandoned him. It's interesting because Jonah actually never says sorry in his prayer. But in another twist of irony, God's comical answer to Jonah's prayer is that he becomes fish vomit. And so the fish spits him out onto dry land. Now, as soon as Jonah's back on dry land, uh, God repeats his command to go and to preach to Nineveh. And so this time Jonah complies. Nineveh is a huge city. It would take days to walk through. And Jonah gives about the least amount of effort possible. He preaches one message at one location in just a few words. In English, it's eight words. In Hebrew, it's only five words. This is what he says. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown or overturned. Notice what's lacking in Jonah's sermon. There's no mention of what the people of Nineveh have done wrong or their sin. There's no instruction to them on how they should appropriately respond. Jonah doesn't even mention God. Five lazy words. Has Jonah intentionally given the bare minimum of information uh, so that way he can say he's no longer disobedient to God's order? It's almost as if Jonah's trying to sabotage his own message or ensure the Ninevites' destruction. Now, why he would feel that way isn't surprising. The Assyrian Empire, which is the capital city located in Nineveh, they're the sworn enemies of Jonah's own people. They're violent. They're brutal. And Jonah may not know this yet, but it'll only be a few short decades and Assyria will march into his homeland and kill most of the people he knows and destroy their homes. So it's not surprising that he doesn't really want them to hear the true message. But whatever his plans and intentions are, they don't work. But God's plans and intentions do. After this measly five-word sermon, the king of Nineveh, the whole city, and even some of their animals bow down in submission to God. Here's what's interesting. This, the final word of uh, 
Jonah's message here. It's the Hebrew word nefach. And uh, this word literally means in its most basic sense to just turn. But it has two connotations. One of the connotations is to be overturned, as in destroyed or overthrown. But the other, instead of being overturned, it carries this connotation of being turned over, as in transformed into something completely opposite of what it was. And so, comically, again, ironically, Jonah's words actually come true, just not in the way he meant them, but exactly in the sense that God meant them. Jonah was proclaiming to these people that in just a short time, they would be overturned. He was hoping for their destruction, but it turns out that in just a short time, God was going to turn them over, that he was going to transform them completely into something new. And so as the city repents and humbles itself before God, God pours out his mercy on them. And so then we moved into chapter four, the final chapter of Jonah. This is how chapter four begins. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. It being the turn around of the Ninevites, their repentance, that they came to humble themselves before God to worship him, and God poured out his mercy on them. That's what it is. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So now we get the full picture of why Jonah ran. He wasn't afraid of God. He wasn't afraid of the Ninevites. He wasn't afraid of the task. And he wasn't afraid of the journey. Jonah was afraid that God would be compassionate and loving to forgive people that Jonah didn't like. And so Jonah's next words are to ask God to kill him on the spot. Now, uh, God questions Jonah's right to be angry, but in grace, God doesn't actually answer Jonah's request for death. So Jonah goes up on a hillside outside of Nineveh where he can oversee the whole city. And he just sits there and he waits and he watches the city. I'm guessing he was hoping that the newfound faith of the Ninevites wouldn't last and that they would get destroyed after all. So while he's up on this hill, he sits in the shade of a tree. And while he's waiting for their destruction, God sends an insect to bite and infect the tree, the plant, so that it begins to wither and its leaves fall off. And now Jonah is just sitting in the hot sun, baking. And he gets angry again. And once again, he asks God to kill him. Sadly, these are the last words we ever hear from Jonah. But God isn't done speaking. Once again, he questions Jonah's right to be angry and then has some harsh words to share with Jonah. 
he calls out Jonah's selfishness and his sinful perspective. He questions Jonah, how could you care so much about this little plant? You didn't plant the seed. You didn't water it. You didn't care for it. You didn't make it grow. It sprouted and grew in one night and it died in another night. What is this plant to you? Yet, you have no care for or concern over a city of many thousands of people who were so lost that they metaphorically, as it says, doesn't know their right hand from their left. And that's how the story ends. That's how the book of Jonah ends. We never hear from Jonah again. We don't know what came of Jonah. Did he realize his selfishness and the stupidity of his worldview? Did he repent and become a good prophet? Did he stay right there sitting in the hot sun with no shade tree anymore and just die? We don't know. But that's part of the point. Because as we discover, this story actually isn't really about Jonah. This story is about God. This story is about the character of God. And the open ending of the story is an invitation to the reader, to me, and to you to question where we stand before God. The fact that we don't get Jonah's answers to God's final questions mean that God's questions aren't really directed at Jonah as much as they're directed at us. And so there's some hard questions in here for us to answer. There are hard questions for the original, the original audience, the Israelites who first read and heard this story. Were they okay with God loving their enemies? Were they okay with God showing compassion and grace and mercy on people they didn't think deserved it? Who hadn't tried to earn it? Same question stands before you and I. Are you okay that God loves people you don't like as much as he loves you? The fact that you're here at church this morning and this other person or people may be out there doing terrible things right now, but are you okay that God loves them just as much as he loves you right now? I mean, we all know the right answer. We all know the church answer. But what about that person who's really caused a lot of pain in your life? They hurt you or they hurt someone you love. Are you okay that God offers forgiveness to them? That he freely throws out his mercy and his love and his grace on them? Would we sit in disappointment at God loving them or would we celebrate? Because the reality is that's exactly what God did with us. Because while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Because while we were enemies of God, he loved us. The only reason we have the ability to love like God is because he first loved us. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you feel like you don't deserve God's love. 
Maybe you look around at other church people this morning and you're like, those look like good people, nice people. I see why God would love them. There's no reason for him to love me because I've done terrible things in my life. And the story of Jonah reminds us that no one is too far from God's love. There's no action, there's no sin that you've committed that disqualifies you from the love of God. And here's something else worth celebrating. You can't outrun God. Not only could the Ninevites and their sin not push God away, Jonah's rebellion and his running couldn't push God away either. God was going to chase him down. And maybe that's where you're today. You feel like you've been running from God and maybe this is the moment he catches up with you. And you realize that his love and his grace extend even to where you are right now. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this moment that we have this morning to reflect on a story that may be thousands of years old, but is as true and relevant as it ever was. Thank you that we get to come in here to be reminded of and to celebrate your love and your mercy, and that none of us are disqualified from it. Thank you that today we're reminded that we can't outrun you. Lord, would you help us to surrender to that today? I'm going to ask you to keep your eyes closed for a moment. As we enter into our time of response, there's a couple opportunities that we have. One of them is we're about to sing a song titled, Great is Thy Faithfulness. That song just celebrated at its 100th birthday since it was written. It's cool that we get to sing a song that's now just over 100 years old about the faithfulness of God. Because it reminds us that we're caught up in a story. That what was true 100 years ago is true today. That we can celebrate God's faithfulness even when we are unfaithful. And to be reminded that not only are we wrapped up into a story that's 100 years old, we're, we're wrapped up into a story that's thousands. To be reminded of God's faithfulness in the face of our sin, in the face of our rebellion, and in the face of our running. And so the invitation is open for you this morning to stop running, to turn to him, to embrace his love, his grace, his mercy his grace and his mercy and his love that were put on full display on the cross as Jesus went to the cross to die for your sins and for mine. And because of that, we invite you to the table to take of the bread and the cup, the bread that represents Jesus' broken body, the cup that represents the new covenant in his blood, the blood that he spilled on the cross for us. It's a reminder of God's love and his faithfulness. And so as we encourage you to sing, we also encourage you and invite you to the table. Lord, may all the ways in which we respond to you now be honoring and worthy of who you are and what you have done.